Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome into the 17th episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. Thank you for finding us. We are always going to be on iTunes if you're an Apple person, Stitcher, or if you're an Android person. We're also on Google Play. And also make sure to subscribe so you get the latest episodes as well as get the previous episodes that we've done. A lot of them still stand up, even though we did them maybe a couple of weeks ago. Today, my friend Chris Whittingham and I are joined by George Sedano, longtime South Florida talk show host now with ESPN, hosts a morning show out in Los Angeles for ESPN, specialist on the NBA. We always like talking NBA with him. George, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, Good to talk to you guys, man. How you been? Good? Evan's good. good. Trying to get this thing going. We've got a Lakers Heat game coming up on Thursday. I know that the country will be riveted by that action. Uh, yes. but, but we thought that would, be, that would be a good time to kind of get into the differences between the two franchises at this point, particularly now that you've had – how long has it been that you've been in Los Angeles now, uh, George? A couple of years almost? Uh, almost two years, yeah. So you have a pretty good handle on the Lakers organization. We're obviously around the Heat for quite a long time. And the other thing about the Lakers and the Heat is that there's just been a lot of shared history over the years with Pat Riley and also the the big Shaquille O'Neal trade going back to 2004, which changed the fortunes of the franchises for a long time. So let's start here with our first reason to take a look at the Heat and the Lakers today. And that reason is, is sort of where these two franchises are positioned going forward. And I just before we get to it, I just want to get to a couple of stats here that I found pretty interesting. Um, since Pat Riley came to Miami in 1995, the Heat have made the playoffs 17 times. The Lakers have made the playoffs 17 times. The Heat have appeared in five finals and won three. The Lakers have appeared in seven finals and won five. I thought this one was really interesting, though. The Heat have had three coaches. The Lakers have had 10 not including the coaches who coached fewer than 10 games. They had a couple of interim coaches in there as well. So the Heat have been maybe not quite as successful as the Lakers over that period of time, but it's certainly been close, and they've been more stable than the Lakers have been over that period of time, and particularly recently. So where do you think the two organizations are right now going forward, George? It's interesting, right? Because Magic Johnson, I actually spoke to him. He came on the radio show, I guess, last year around this time, shortly after he took over the Lakers role as the president. And one of the things he told me was he had spent a lot of time with Pat Riley and he had talked to Pat about a number of things about building an organization. And they had a long chat and Pat was in California and and they'd been talking over the phone and They spent about a week going back and forth just discussing the job even before he took it. And Magic has taken a lot of the Riley playbook and has brought it back to the Lakers organization. And that's something that I think that I don't know if anyone outside of the people that heard that interview really understand that Pat's kind of influence is still going on here in L.A. and still going on through Magic. And Magic has taken that playbook and done this. He is drafted. What he thinks is a cornerstone player in Lonzo Ball. Now, we can make the argument whether he is or isn't, but he believes so, much like Pat drafted Dwayne in 2003. And he's also has a nice young roster of talented players, much like Pat had in 2003, that he could, if he'd like to, flip for a star. And he's also, much like Pat in 2010, combining kind of the last two methods of Pat Riley's success in Miami – created $70 million in cap space for this upcoming offseason to bring in two max-level players. And he's hoping that one of them is LeBron James, is my guess. So with that said, I think the Lakers, as currently constituted, now again, he's got to close the deal, Magic Johnson, are in a much better position than the Heat right now to potentially be championship relevant. The Heat have been locked in, as you guys know, into these contracts where they've got some good players, some role players, and some 
you know, potential there with Bam Adebayo and Josh Richardson, but they don't have any star power, and they certainly don't have any flexibility going into the next offseason or the next couple of offseasons. So with Miami, you're basically banking on Pat Riley throwing a Hail Mary and finding a way to trade for a disgruntled superstar, which, look, he's done in the past, but that's going to be a lot more difficult with the current state of the NBA. Not a lot of teams with cap space, not a lot of teams with money, at least this upcoming offseason. So they find themselves in a much more difficult position, I think, than the Lakers right now moving forward if we're sitting here talking about who can be more championship-relevant sooner. And I don't think you can underestimate, too, the work that Magic Johnson has done from this respect. It really was looking dire for the Lakers 18 months ago. It was the summer of 2016 when they signed Mozgov and Luol Deng to these terrible contracts, and they were trying to win 38 games to make the playoffs. And so for in that space of time to flip one of those terrible deals into a better asset, an expiring contract, and, and you're able to move off of that. Yes, you got rid of D'Angelo Russell perhaps a bit too early, but it doesn't seem like you're going to be burned on that one. Maybe you cut bait before it was proven that he was a bust rather than where at least another team can bank on the potential. And so in the space of 18 months, Magic Johnson has pulled off the Pat Riley playbook to perfection because he's now positioning his team as a good one going forward. We've seen that they've had a bit of recent success. And then you have all of these available chips, whether they're young players to trade, salary cap space, everything that you would want as an NBA franchise, the Lakers, along with their mystique as the NBA signature franchise, you'd have to say, going forward, you have everything you could possibly want to go and build out a team. So you see this opportunity for Magic Johnson, and I think his also aura in terms of going into a room and not necessarily throwing rings on a table, but having that presence, having that mystique, I think the Lakers are perfectly positioned going forward, whether it's with LeBron James or with someone else, to really make a run at a superstar and finally end this rebuilding project that would still be going on if not for Magic Johnson. Yeah, listen, I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's any question, Ethan. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But yeah, Magic took a little flack with the D'Angelo trade because it was somewhat unprecedented to attach a number two overall pick to a bad contract to move it, right? Like, at least I don't recall that happening anywhere else. And we've talked about that here at Nauseam. And D'Angelo, though, Chris, you're right. Like, we don't know how good he is. We know he's got some talent, but Magic and the folks here in L.A. didn't feel like he was enough of a leader to be the guy you build around. They actually felt that Lonzo's temperament, his father aside, because let's face it, the kid... As much as the dad is a loudmouth, the kid pretty much pushes the dad aside all the time. <laughs> so they just feel he's got the right temperament, the right game to be able to translate to what they want, which is to attract stars, right? The Lakers have always been built on stars, much like the playbook Pat Riley has in Miami. Where do you think he got it from? That was the original Jerry West playbook. So in essence, Magic Johnson is executing the Pat Riley playbook who is executing the Jerry West playbook. But yeah, yeah, listen, I, I just think that when you look at the Lakers with all the stuff that they've got going on for them, maneuverability, flexibility, young players that teams could covet, all of it is there. Again, it's about closing the deal. I think if, if they strike out here, though, this offseason, and they don't get LeBron, I guess if they get Paul George, you can't consider it striking out, even though everyone assumes he's going to be here. But, man, it, it, the way that they've been talking, if they don't get two big-time players, like two regular perennial all-star type players, it's going to feel like a bit of a disappointment here. But they have their eyes set on LeBron as far as I know. Whether LeBron actually comes out to the West is a whole different ball game that we can get into later. But yeah, it, it, it's absolutely they've positioned themselves um, to be a top destination come July 1st. But what's strange about it is you mentioned how Magic is following the Riley playbook, but Riley's not following the Riley playbook. Um, that's, I mean, yeah. that's something that Chris and I have talked about on some of these pods. I mean, what he did, you know, we're going to get a little bit into Dwayne Wade and Kobe and how the franchises handled those two situations here a little bit later. But if you look at what happened here, you know, in 2016, you know, they had the opportunity after striking out on Durant, which was expected, even after resigning Whiteside, but deciding, you know, not reaching terms with Dwayne, you know, they had a chance that, you know, after they brought in, you know, some, you know, low salary players and sort of 
brought him in here to see what stuck. You know, they had an opportunity to be flexible going forward, and and Pat decided to fall in love with guys who are low ceiling players. Um, you know, whether it was you know James Johnson, and you know you're paying him and now until he's 34 years old um, after you know really one season that was sort of an outlier from the rest of his career, or paying Dion Waiters based on two months knowing that he needed ankle surgery, <laughs> that the Tyler Johnson you know match of that contract. So what's odd to me about what Riley's done, particularly at this stage of his career to be, you know, what is he now? Is it going to be 73 years old, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. To be at that stage and and to be locking himself into a team that looks like its upside is is maybe, you know, a five or a six seed in a best case scenario and is sort of always going to be battling to get out of ninth or tenth. It's just a strange move for him when we see the rest of the league has gone to either you're going to chase Golden State or you're going to tank and clear space. And the Heat have taken this middle position, and it's very unlike anything the Pat's ever really done. Oh, I'm with you 100%. It's super strange. It's super odd. The only thing that comes even remotely close to it, Ethan, and I'm not necessarily making this, uh, you know, equating these two as parallels, is after the 2006 championship, he kept that team together. And he told a bunch of us, you and I included, that that was one of his uh, big regrets is that he didn't shake that team up knowing that that team had already capped out after winning a championship because those guys were not going to come back at that stage of their career and be that hungry. And if you remember, <laughs> Antoine right. Walker and James Posey getting suspended in the middle of the season for not well, George, making Antoine, weight. And- Antoine Walker George, was Ant- actually hungry. Well, he was. I mean, Antoine yes. promised in the in Different the kind of hunger in, in yeah. Dallas yeah. – well, yeah, he promised in the locker room in 2006 that he was going to keep drinking until training camp, and <laughs> right. uh, he was a he man of his that. word, I think. Yeah, he, fu- he fulfilled <laughs> so. that. But that's the only thing that comes even remotely close to this. I was stunned that this is what the Heat did, because I'll tell you this. My understanding, and I don't look. I mean, this is just my understanding of the situation. If the Lakers were to strike out this season, Magic has already talked about 2019. So my guess is their plan will be to sign guys to one-year deals again. They'll probably offer Isaiah Thomas one year for $20 million or something ridiculous like that. And they're going to go that, that route to create flexibility for 2019. It won't be what Pat just did, which is, yes, completely out of character from what we, we've known him to be. Here's the other thing. Some people believe that the strategy for Pat was, well, they're going to sign all these guys to deals that are going to look good in the new NBA economy. And they did for what, about five minutes um, maybe a half a season until Lou Williams signed a three-year, $24 million extension and kind of torpedoed that. Because at $12 million, you could say that Kelly Olynyk looks good, and he might still, to be honest with you. But when you got a guy like Lou Williams, and again, he's a little older, but you got Lou Williams only taking $8 million a year for the next three years at that kind of production, it really hurts the value of a lot of guys across the league. And I don't think that's something that Pat and Andy Ellisberg took into account. Right, because cause they had the thought, but so did everyone else, right? Everyone else had the thought, well, this contract will look good in two years from now. And the problem is that everyone just gave away all their cap space. And so, like we've talked about, there's only like five teams that have cap space in this, in this upcoming offseason. And so the Lakers are perfectly positioned because they're one of the few teams that realize that cap space could be a commodity. Now, they realize that after giving away two of the worst contracts in the history of the league, not just in right. that offseason, but they, they've done well. You know, we, we mentioned the Russell trade. They still have, you know, a lot of promising young players. Players. I think the Kyle Kuzma pick has really allowed them to do some of this stuff because in and of itself, you're saying D'Angelo Russell, we're getting rid of him after two years despite making him our number two overall pick, and you don't have anyone else that also looks promising in behind. Well, Kyle Kuzma is you know the exact opposite in terms of you weren't picking high in the draft. It was this random throwaway pick that you got, and he's turned out to be a D'Angelo Russell number two overall kind of prospect. And so maybe that kind of smooths things over. You still have a young player that's kind of there in the shadows that can help you in terms of being a long-term asset. But the Lakers are one of the few teams that realize that, oh yeah, no, cap space will still be important to have even as this salary cap felt like it was going to just be infinite, that there was never going to be an amount of money where you wouldn't have money to spend. Let's get to the second thing we wanted to debate on here, because one of the parallels between the organization in recent years was that they had two of the greatest two guards in NBA history. 
And I, I don't think there's any question that Kobe slots in at number two. And depending on where you put Jerry West and some of the other players, Dwayne Wade is pretty close to number three if he's not number three. The two organizations handled the end of their careers very differently. And I, I think the Heat's way of handling their two guards career was influenced in part by what happened in Los Angeles. Now that Dwayne is back in Miami playing for a low budget contract, I know today he came out or Barry Jackson had a report that this may be Dwayne's last year, especially if the Heat don't want him back. How do you view how the two franchises handled their franchise two guards at the end? Look, I think it's just a matter of uh, what flavor you like, okay? Because if you are the emotional fan who wants to see the one player play his entire career for the one team and you take care of your own and loyalty matters and all that stuff, then the way the Lakers did it was right. Now, the Lakers also had other motives beyond just loyalty to Kobe. They also had just signed at the time a gazillion-dollar deal with Spectrum Cable to have their own channel. And look, it's the only thing that that channel draws with, okay? It's the Lakers. And every time Kobe was on, they got big numbers. And I'm not just talking about the farewell tour because they were, remember, they signed that deal and there were times when Kobe was, was injured. And on the games that Kobe was definitely not playing, the numbers weren't the same. And last year, the numbers on Spectrum were down big. And it wasn't until Lonzo came and was drafted and this, this young team had some real promise where those numbers have shot up again. But yeah, they did it for out of loyalty and for business reasons. Now, the Heat did the practical thing. They didn't keep emotion involved in this conversation, but they did make it seem like they did by offering him a contract that was close enough to what the Bulls were offering at the time that made you think to yourself, well, should I blame the Heat or should I blame Dwayne here for this breakup? Because at the end of the day, it's only $6 million. And, uh, you know, Chris and you and I talked about this off the air earlier that everyone becomes accountants. Uh, during uh, <laughs> during the NBA offseason, and you start doing the math, and you're like, well, after taxes, I mean, how much money is what we really talking about? I mean, clearly feelings were hurt there over what ended up being just a couple of million dollars. But the Heat were able to mask that better in that regard. But they absolutely, we all felt at the time, and we knew this going in, that it was going to be tough. Ethan, you and I specifically talked about back then that the previous one-year deal for Dwayne was a little tumultuous, mm -hmm. right? Remember, like, people mm -hmm. forget that the year before that wasn't easy either. Dwayne was on NBA Countdown during the NBA Finals, and everyone was right. freaking out because he wasn't referring to Miami as his team and all that nonsense that was going on at the time. So, yeah, like, I, I just think that the last couple of years were a bit of a grind with the way the team was handling Dwayne and, and how those negotiations were going. But at the end of the day... I think Miami made the right decision from a pure basketball standpoint, whereas the Lakers made an emotional one. But it did pay off for them in this sense that they needed to do it for business reasons. They needed Kobe in the fold because that 50-whatever-million-dollar contract was peanuts compared to the billions they were getting in a TV deal. Right, there are sort of three aspects to this, and I think, sir, and I think people, you know, say, "Oh, you know, Pat Riley did business." Well, if Mickey Arison was doing the business, he would have asked for Dwayne Wade to stay because, like you said, TV ratings stay up. The secondary ticket market, I, I think, you know, when, when you look at the Heat in the post Dwayne Wade area, particularly when they're in the middle of that eleven and thirty stretch, I mean, you can get into the lower bowl for like twenty five bucks. I mean, the the tickets go go way down, and I'm sure George in Los Angeles during Kobe's final season, whenever. Kobe Kobe was playing, it was a hot ticket to get in the building for a team that yeah. won like 21 games the entirety of the season. So there's three sort of boxes to check. There's emotion, there's off-court business, like you said, the cable TV network, the tickets, the money, and the managing of the salary cap. And the Heat went for the third one. And so when you look at the way that that all played out, I would say it worked out brilliantly. To me, the thing, though, and I think this is at times where as media members, we can be a bit cold. We look at the salary cap stuff. I don't mean to be a bit grim, but I don't know if you saw the story yesterday about uh, Dwayne Wade and the victim of the Stoneman Douglas shooting who was buried in his jersey. And that's the kind of thing that Lakers fans, like, even if it's, you know, it's 2%. It's 
The difference between Lakers fans and Heat fans is they never saw him in another uniform. And the kids that grew up only knowing Kobe Bryant and loving Kobe Bryant never had to see him play for another team. And let's be honest, for Heat fans, that was a really painful experience. Watching him in Chicago and then twist the knife of going to play with LeBron and Cleveland, this team that you've always hated, there is that little bit. Obviously, they were thrilled to have him back. And that night when he came back to American Airlines Arena on that Friday night was really fun and really special. But there is still that little moment, that year and a half's worth of history where he played in another uniform, and you lose something with that. Now, obviously, that's something, you know, it, it depends on what your price is. To me, I think they made the right decision, but I can understand an emotional fan not ever wanting to have to see that. And I think that's ultimately the decision that the Heat cited for and perhaps, you know, still face a little bit of, I wouldn't say backlash, but a little bit of that something in the back of your mind that's not full-fledged support. I think the Heat were hurt PR-wise by letting Dwayne go because of, you know, his influence in the league. It's not LeBron's influence, but because he's so close to LeBron and LeBron was vocal about the way Dwayne's departure went, I think that that didn't help. Plus, they were coming off the heels of the Bosch thing that got messy. And obviously, Mm -hmm. LeBron's thing got messy. So, Ethan, you know, Chris, you you were not necessarily around at this particular time. But Ethan and I have been around long enough to know that all the the endings with Pat are messy, right? Like, that's just kind of the way this thing goes. Except nowadays, in a social media world, 24-hour news cycle world, and the fact that players have way more power and influence than they used to, I think that that came back to bite the heat a little bit. And I I don't know how they can rectify that, even with Dwayne coming back, unless Dwayne goes on some sort of full-court press, hey, everything's good, kumbaya, this organization's great, and kind of helps them behind the scenes with guys down the road. Which, look, when I had my conversations with him, he was very not into thinking about having to recruit. And Ethan, I'm pretty sure that you remember these conversations too. It's not something that Dwayne was necessarily interested in throughout his career, to be honest with you. No, he wasn't. And he particularly was not interested in, in the summer of 2016 after, especially after what he went through in the summer of 2015. And then they were, you know, going to be taking care of Hassan at the very beginning. And then ultimately, you know, making the run at Durant. And, and it wasn't something that Dwayne was particularly interested in because he felt like he'd been waiting all that time to be treated like that. And he wasn't. All right, let's get to uh, let's get to our third point that we wanted to get to here on the show. We've talked about Pat Riley quite a bit here, and obviously he has a shared history between these two organizations. And I don't think when he left Los Angeles and went to New York that you'd ever think that he would be associated with a third franchise that ultimately people might put next to his name first, as opposed to you know being the guy in charge, the head coach with the Knicks and the head coach with the Lakers in two markets like New York and Los Angeles. But I think it's pretty safe to make a case now that when Riley's career is said and done – that he's going to be known at least as much for his time with the Heat, in part because of the longevity of it, more than two decades, as he is for his time with the Lakers. Would you agree with that, George? Oh, yeah, I don't think there's any question. I think the Knicks are a blip on the radar. Like, the Knicks become a footnote. If anything, I think that in the Knicks' tenure, you look at it, you eliminate it right off the bat, not only just because of longevity or lack thereof, but you eliminate it because he didn't win there, right? Like, let's start there. And it honestly only stayed relevant for as long as it did because of the way he left, right? Like, we all remember that he faxed his resignation, right? Like, we we remember that stuff, kind of like when Michael Jordan returned, that he faxed, I'm back, right? Like, those are just little things you remember from that particular era. Um, But, yeah, I don't think there's any question that you look at the two and they're probably equal. If not, Miami would be greater. Because, yes, he got his start with the Lakers. And, yes, you always have to remember the beginnings of someone. But Pat Riley won a championship as a coach and won championships, plural, as an executive with the Miami Heat. Obviously, you know, he was dual role when he was a coach. But all those things have to matter. And I think that, you know, Pat said it when he won the one in 2006, I want to say. He said, Ethan, if, in the locker room, I don't know if you were there, but he said that he would give all the other ones back for that one because it meant so much more to kind of like validation for himself. Because remember, Pat had been in Miami for 11 seasons without a championship at that point, 
And all those losses to the Knicks and all the stuff, all the different heartache, Alonzo's kidney, uh, you know, those teams not panning out, like just so much stuff that he had to go through to get to that point that I think that if you ask Pat and you gave him truth serum, right, like he would say that the Miami stuff matters more because of what he had to do to get it, you know, and get to that particular level. But yeah, I would say it's close. But I would probably give the Heat a, an edge in that scenario because of all the stuff I just mentioned. Don't think you can overstate recency bias when it comes to this, too, because you know, you've know you seen Pat Riley with the Heat for over 20 years now. I'm speaking from a personal point of view. I'm relying on documentaries to tell me about what it was like for Pat Riley with the Knicks or with the Lakers. I don't know any of that. And so to me, that sort of 20 years where he becomes associated with a franchise. It's frankly, to me, why he makes the move, right? He doesn't make the move to Miami, a relatively, you know, at that time, downtrodden franchise, uh, unless he basically has this, you know, blank canvas to do whatever he wants with it. And I think that's why he was attracted to the opportunity, is because here's this thing. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Miami Heat. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly... Everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That I can create, and that from scratch I can create this basketball team that is entirely in my image. In my image. It is my organization. And I think that's – and getting back to the previous point, that does factor into how the relationships between Dwayne Wade and Pat Riley broke down because there is – even if it's not necessarily spoken out loud, there is a subtext of, well, who gets the credit for all of this? And I think Dwayne Wade would take credit for it, but Pat Riley, who's been there for 20 years, has said, well, I built this thing from the ground up. It's my organization. And I think that's why he was attracted to it and why I think both in terms of you know, with people like myself that only know him as an executive with the Heat or, or as a coach with the Heat, and that sort of other factor of this is entirely his, whereas in the context of the Lakers, it's kind of the same thing with Kobe, right, where he can't even be the, the organization's best ever player because the organization is so rich with tradition that there isn't any one individual that can be associated with that franchise. I think that sort of creates that difference where I do think he becomes more, more associated with Miami because the Lakers are associated with so many different things that that Pat Riley, one coach along the way, isn't really that standout figure. When we get to the topic of LeBron, I think, Chris, that's one of the things that's going to be interesting is because it's an argument I've made, too, for maybe why LeBron would or wouldn't go to the Lakers, because there you're joining an organization that has had such a galaxy of stars that you have to sort of make your own way there to stand out in a way that you wouldn't 
for another organization. But I, I think, George, and I know you like poking at the Knicks quite a bit, but it is a little bit sad for the Knicks' sake that really the best years of the Knicks in the past, what, since the past 30 or 40, right, since the early 70s, were the Riley years or the Riley slash Van Gundy years. And really, that's a blip in Pat's career, right? Like that's because he yeah. didn't have, um, you know, I mean, he built that thing, you know, in terms of guys like Starks and Mason, who he molded into starters on that team and got to an NBA finals. But ultimately, you know, when Riley's career is considered, I mean, the Knicks are going to be a distant third. And if they had simply given him the personnel control that he wanted towards the end of that thing, he might still be there at this stage. We never would be hearing about Riley with the heats. So I just think it's Knicks fans have had enough indignities over the years, but I think that's another one is is their best era is one that for the guy who helped construct it really ranks third among the franchises that he that he's been with i think you're underselling the fact that i like to poke at the knicks i think i made a career of it in miami (laughs) for uh you know well over a decade um yeah listen you're right you hit the nail on the head i mean i guess you could sit here and make reference to you know the post riley era with jeff van gundy that they made another finals but here's the thing like you could make the case that at least most of those guys that were on that roster were guys that Pat had, right? Like at least a good chunk of them, maybe. Maybe not even most. I don't know. I'd have to go back and check. No, um, it, was, it was most of them, George. I mean, it was still, um, I mean, you know, they made the trade for... David Starks, right. right they, they made the trade for Sewell and Houston. Houston right. they still, yeah. The, to Chris's point about the Lakers, I mean, look, Riley still is the guy. Now, he may not have the most wins all time in Laker history. Phil has that now. But Riley still has the greatest winning percentage. I believe, of any Lakers that qualifies, any uh, Lakers head coach at like 70-something percent, 72, 73% win percentage. Um, You know, Pat only has one less title than Phil as the Lakers head coach. So, like, look, I think that Pat's legacy within the Lakers is cemented. I I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about what he's going to be most known for, yeah, at the end of the day, it's going to be Miami. I think that there is some recency bias. I think there's a generational bias there too, right? Like Because it's not just about what's happened lately. It's about how far back your memory goes, right? Like you said it, Chris, where you only know Pat's Showtime days from watching 30 for 30s. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, and obviously you hear of the legend, right? Because if, if you're knowing the story of Pat Riley, you don't know it without thinking of him as a traveling secretary at one point or the journey that he went as team broadcaster into being the head coach. So obviously you learn that story. But other than that, and it's funny because I, I wouldn't have even thought possible that Pat Riley could coach a team that would be associated with Showtime because I knew him as Nick's coach, this right. horrific team from a stylistic point of view. Wait, he coached the nicest, you know, the, the nicest style of basketball that we've seen in the league until, frankly, the recent era of basketball. It's, it's surprising to even think of it in those terms. So, and, and this is where I think you know, sometimes the millennial generation that we get so much crap for everything, but this is where we can't have our blind spots is that we just think whatever the most recent thing that happened is the entire context of history, and you lose out on thinking of Pat Riley in other terms. Well, it's funny you say that, and right? So, re- because mm-hmm. just so you know, um, now I don't know what the current Houston Rockets or Golden State Warriors offensive rating is at the moment, but back around Christmas, I did sidelines for a game between the Rockets and Clippers, and one of the notes I had on one of my hits was that at that time, the Houston Rockets had the highest offensive rating in the history of the NBA, second to only the 86-87 Lakers. So that goes to show you what kind of offense that Pat Riley had in Los Angeles when he was there. And you know what's interesting, too, when you talk about recency bias, you know, it plays into not only what organization you think of Riley with, but also what you think of as his primary job in the NBA. And I think there are a lot of people now who think of him more as an executive than they do as a coach, Um, because even even to go back to coaching, you're talking a decade now. And although, you know, he won with the 2006 team, I think what he's most famous for now on social media and and the rest is throwing his rings on the table in 2010 and getting, you know, LeBron and Bosch to come down. So, again, I think that 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 whole godfather thing that wasn't from coaching. That was from from being an executive. So let's get to the fourth thing here. And speaking of LeBron, because uh, 
Uh, you mentioned it earlier that the Lakers are positioning themselves to make a run at him this year. I don't think there's any question that LeBron's tenure in Miami went well. I know there are some people who would look at it and say, well, they didn't. They never won 72 games, and they lost two, fi- two of the four finals that he was in, but they made four NBA finals. They won two championships. He won his first championship. The first year that he was down here, he was playing with a team that, frankly, beyond the big three, was really, really bad. Actually, oh my that God. was a substandard yeah, I mean, think, roster. Think, think about that roster for one second. Let's just look mm-hmm. back at what was playing. You had Joel Anthony playing significant minutes, okay? Like, Joel Anthony, we're, he's with San Antonio now, I believe, right? Like, he... And when was the last time he actually he played real minutes? No, I, I I don't think he's still there. I think he was there last the year. Last think, season. Okay, last, so last, last season, season he was there. Yeah, I think Joel Anthony was fourth on that Heat team in minutes. Uh, he and James Jones were were fourth and fifth, I believe, because Udonis Haslam was supposed to be the fourth, or Mike Miller was hurt. supposed to be the fourth right. best player on that team. They got, Both hurt. got hurt. Average minutes played, I'm looking back at it right now. So average minutes played. LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Mike Bibby. Remember how we all celebrated Mike <laughs> Bibby uh, coming to the Miami Heat. Udonis Haslam, Mario Chalmers, Mike Miller. Carlos Arroyo got 20 minutes a game. Joel, 19 and a half. James Jones, 19. Eddie House, 17 and a half minutes. Eric Dampier played 51 games at 16 minutes. Zadrunas Ogauskas, Jawan Howard, Jamal McGlure, Jerry Stackhouse, Dexter Pittman. That was right. the team. So that was not the greatest team ever assembled. I mean, even though you had the big three and even though Dwayne was was relatively close to his prime, he was still sort of on the very edge of his prime and still played at a prime level in the NBA Finals, would have been the MVP if they'd won. The fact is that first team wasn't great. And I think you no. look at the four years in totality, you say two championships, four finals appearances, that thing went pretty damn well for LeBron. My question for you, George, is if LeBron signs with the Lakers – at this stage of his career, and I, I wouldn't say he's on the edge of his prime yet. He's edging a little bit closer to it. But in his 15th season, he's still playing at a very high level. Do you think it would go as well for him with the Lakers as it went for the Heat? And what would his, how would it affect his legacy to win or not win with that organization? I don't think it'll go as well. And I think that the reason, not just because he's at the latter stages of his career, it's because the West is just more loaded. Think about the teams he had to go through. Yeah, that Boston team, I get it. Like, I get that that team was good. They weren't Golden State good, right? Like, there's that. Like, let's just start there. And my question to you is this. Maybe you, okay, you can make the case that they had a more talented roster than the Houston Rockets do right now. But you can't argue with the output of the Houston Rockets being 32-3 and in games that Chris Paul and James Harden have played in, right? Though Kevin Pelton, my colleague at ESPN, had a great story this morning on ESPN.com about how they're the biggest threat the Warriors have ever had. So even though we can argue the merits of the roster on those two particular teams, you can make the case the Rockets are even better than that Boston team. At least their output is better. So, yeah, it just it's a lot more difficult. Could he win a championship? Sure. I think he could win a championship because I think he puts you in that conversation. But I think it makes it infinitely more difficult because you've got those type of teams out there. Not to mention, and look, obviously there's a lot of stuff there that we don't know about Kawhi yet, whether it's that he wants to be there or his injury situation or whatnot. But you can never count out the Spurs uh, in any stretch by any stretch of the imagination. Oklahoma City, we'll see what they look like. It's just so much more of a grind out West that it would be hard for me to fathom that if we're talking about the amount of championships being the measuring stick, that he would have more than two in L.A. at this stage of his career, even with the talent that they can amass around him, whether that's the young talent dealing for some you know, more veteran guys or another superstar with some of that talent and adding another max player. It would be really difficult unless, look, the only way there's a caveat to this is if it's LeBron, Paul George, and they somehow take those young guys and trade them for like Anthony Davis, right? Like then all of a sudden, maybe I say to, I say to myself, I can convince myself LeBron can win more than one championship in L.A. if that ends up happening. Because we're all assuming Anthony Davis is not long for New Orleans, but we also assumed that Boston is the requisite spot for him where the Lakers have – the ability you know, to potentially trade for him too. But only if like something like that were to materialize would I say he'd have a shot to win more than one or two championships in L.A. at this stage. 
Man, understanding that obviously Golden State and Houston are incredible. Houston has a ton of work to do to, to stay together and then to, to add from there. So I, I think it's going to be hard for them to sort of carry on. I, I, I trust that Daryl Morey can do it, but I think Houston has a longer road than Golden State does. Golden State and eclipsing them is going to be really hard, but I really do think that this Lakers situation doesn't have a ceiling. So you would think Luol Deng, maybe you have to stretch him, but maybe he is the sort of salary filler in a trade. You basically say to another team, we'll give you a, you know, a really good young player so that you take Luol Deng and so we can take back your salary. But even if, okay, so let's say they, they, they decide to stretch him. They could basically, so that's, you, you release a player, but you pay it over the course of twice the length of his contract plus one year. So you'd basically be getting off of $11 million this year or this offseason, if you stretch Luol Deng, that takes their total uh, cap space up to $73 million in the offseason. If I'm, if I'm saying to you, you have $73 million to work with and three pieces on your team that you can auction off to the highest bidder to build out a supporting cast, or if you want to, decide to keep, there's so much work there to be done to where all of a sudden you can go from having a very threadbare roster to really solid role players around two superstar players and I think the draw of the Lakers, the draw of the ability to go and win championships for that franchise, and frankly, I, I think once you get past Golden State and Houston, Minnesota is there, but then you're thinking of an OKC team that maybe you steal their star from them, so they kind of get eliminated from the conversation. Like, th- there's two teams that you're worried about, and San Antonio probably, that it, it's not that insurmountable, right? Because if you're going to win the championship, you're going to have to do it against great teams anyway. I think the potential that they have to build out an incredible roster in one offseason, if they nail all their moves, I do think they can compete for championships straight away and have a better team than the Heat did in 2010. They definitely can have a better team than the Heat did in 2010. I don't, I'll give you that. We talked about how bad that roster was. But what I would say is, Ethan, you were in Cleveland. Who has Cleveland faced in the East when he, since his return? That you can sit here and say is even as good as those Celtics teams. No, there hasn't been had any. to play. Right? No, there hasn't been any. Not even as good as those Indiana teams that the Heat had to play in in the conference. No, line. no, the Indiana teams. I mean, you can argue about you know individual talent on that team, but that was so well put together starting five. Um, the teams that that Cleveland has beaten. I mean, a Boston team that was uh, you know has sort of been playing over its head until uh, they're, they're still playing over their head this season, to be honest, but they were really playing over their head with the talent that they had the past couple of years, a Toronto team that has at times not looked ready for prime time. I mean, this is the best Toronto team, the team that they have this yeah. year. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you look at the other teams in the Eastern conference. No, there, there really has not been, you know, a real threat. He hasn't been challenged in the first round at all. I mean, I, there's a reason why I would think he doesn't want the format to change, um, provided right. that he is staying at the Eastern Conference. He doesn't want to go to a 1-16 through 16 situation so where you don't uh, seed by conference. So, no, I mean, look, the East has not had... I, I would argue that the, since 2010, since LeBron went to Miami, that the best team that he had to beat may have been that Chicago team that won what was 62 games that year with a prime rose uh, yes. before Noah broke down. That mm-hmm. was that was probably the best team, and, and they you know they beat that team in five games. And then you know Boston because of its mental toughness. But again, all of the, those players were were towards the end, with the exception of Rondo. So well, and and Chris was hurt that year, right? Wasn't he? Wasn't that the in, he got hurt? Yeah, and then he came back yeah. for that series. Yeah, yeah. But Bosch came back at the very end of that series after getting hurt against Indiana. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing, Chris, is that he's going to have to go through a much tougher gauntlet out West because even the first round matchups there, for the most part, aren't necessarily layups. No pun intended. But yeah, so that that would be the only reason I would I would caution. And, and my guess is what he's thinking about, too, as to why he would go to the West. Just from a legacy perspective, what's in it for LeBron in Los Angeles? Is it just the idea of, of winning championships for three different organizations and winning with an organization that has been known as one of the two sort of flagship organizations of the NBA. What's in it for him? Because I I would think the downside is if he doesn't win there, ultimately, then then he faces, you know, some questions as far as, you know, people who are Kobe Bryant fans may hold that against LeBron. So so how would they welcome LeBron in L.A., particularly the Kobe fans? And, And what is the legacy risk for him in Los Angeles? Well, look, there are, as Amino Hassan, my uh, colleague, likes to say, a lot of Kobistanis uh, here in Los <laughs> Angeles. They are, they are absolutely loyal 
to uh, the uh, the country of Kobistani. And uh, there are people, man, who I will, when we start talking about LeBron to LA, that will tweet me during the show and be like, we don't want LeBron. We don't need LeBron. You know, like there is, a, there is some of that. Now, I don't think it's the overwhelming majority. I think that most people realize that you get LeBron and that you're going to be championship relevant. I think most people are rational in that sense. But I think he is going to have kind of that hurdle to clear, right? Like he's got to set his own legacy. And un- unless he wins a championship or multiple championships, which will be hard at that stage of his career, as we already outlined, you know, he may get some flack. But I do think there's that. I think he could be the first guy to win championships in three different spots. I think that Pablo Torre, my colleague at ESPN, had a story a little over a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, where him and LeBron and, and LeBron's guys, and Maverick and Rich and those guys, and they were talking about kind of beyond basketball. And who better to learn beyond basketball from than Magic Johnson, right? The ultimate entrepreneur, athlete turned entrepreneur. So I think there's some of that potentially. And all those things combined, I think, and the Laker mystique, as Chris pointed to earlier, I think is part of the allure to the Lakers. But look, man, you know LeBron. Like, I think that he's got the ultimate confidence in himself at this stage of his life. He's had it for a long time now. And he feels like he can be a difference maker wherever he is. He's also very calculated, though, as we all know. And I think that he's going to make the decision that ultimately helps not just his legacy, but helps his brand because that's what's as important to him, I think. I think that those two go hand in hand, right? His brand and his legacy are all collide kind of in the same universes. Can I just very quickly make one point on on this, which is that the Lakers have never... So right now they're heading towards a fifth consecutive under 500 season. So the last four years they've won 27, 21, 17, and 26. They're doing better this season, but unless they go on an incredible run to close the year, they'll finish below 500 again. They have not gone five straight seasons below 500 since they were in Minneapolis. So that this has always been a winning franchise. And so I, to me, the, the legacy turn for LeBron is saving the Lakers because they've been so mm-hmm. poor for five years now. There is going to be someone, particularly after the Lakers have struck out in free agency in recent years, uh, in terms of not being that destination, he is the guy that can make them the destination again and sort of return them to their status as NBA's flagship franchise. And so I do think there is real value in that, particularly, as you mentioned, George, from that brand standpoint. And I think from the overall legacy standpoint, yes, there are Lakers fans that maybe want to see this young group develop or don't want him to follow in the footsteps of Kobe, but there probably are more Lakers fans that just want them to be great again. Not, not to sound like Donald Trump, but that's really important. Chris, yeah, 100%. And I would say, though, there are always going to be fans that want to stick with the young guys. Like, I, again, I get those tweets all the time. There were people that wanted Pat not to trade Karan Butler and Lamar Odom for Shaq back in 2003 or four. Yeah. And Ethan will remember that. I remember being on the radio on Fox Sports Radio. It was one of my, my first national gig. I was doing late night overnights in my mid-20s on 300 affiliates across the country. And one of them happened to be in Boston on WEEI. And I remember when the... Celtics were making all those deals to get Garnett and Ray and all those guys. And there were people there who were yelling about, I, you we can't trade Al Jefferson and Gerald yeah. Green for Kevin Garnett. And it's like you're sitting there going, what? What are you thinking? Like I remember in real time going, are you guys out of your mind? You know, whether it was with the Heat with Shaq or Kevin Garnett with the Celtics and now even with LeBron with the Lakers. Like if you have a chance to get those type of players, you do whatever it takes to get them. All right, George, since we've got you here and we got a few questions from Twitter, people had uh, tweeted this in to us. Uh, George is at uh, Sedano ESPN. I'm at Ethan J. Skolnick. Chris is at Chris Whittingham. we got a few questions for you, so I'm going to put you on the spot here with some Miami, Los Angeles stuff. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. Better sports fans. Oh, man. Tough one, I, man. I mean, geez, yeah. Um, look, I just think there's more history in Los Angeles, right? Like, I think that that's just kind of how we have to go, right? Like, the Dodgers have been around forever. The Lakers have been around forever. I think based on history, you have to lean towards the Lakers there, right? But by the way, there are some similarities to these two fan bases. <laughs> there is a lot of we show up when we want to show up and we leave when we want to leave. Now, again, Dodgers and Lakers fans generally fill the building, but they are notorious for no, being known to arrive late and leave early because of traffic. So there is some similarities there. But look, on history alone, you have to go Los Angeles. 
I just wanted you I had to make you dance there a little bit because we all I, I, I know what the answer to this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And you did a great uh, job of making me dance. Yes. Better restaurants, George. Ooh. See, this one's really close because Miami's food scene has really grown over the last couple of years. But I've heard the and same I'm about going... L.A., though. I've heard the same about L- uh, the, the L.A. restaurants are fantastic now. Oh, no, they are. But they've always been. I feel like I, I never thought of them as not being great. OK, here's the thing. For the food I like, I would lean towards Miami because I've yet to find a great Cuban restaurant in Southern California. But I think there's way more variety in L.A. than there is in Miami. Like you can get food from countries you've barely ever heard of right (laughs) in L.A. because there's just so many more people here and so many people from different places. But, yeah, if you like Hispanic food that's not just Mexican food, I think Miami is is better in that regard. And that's kind of why, for me, it makes more sense. Uh, Miami would make more sense in that conversation. All right. Before we let you go, one more here. Is there any chance that the Dolphins win a Super Bowl before the Rams do? Man, not the way they look right now, right? Like the Rams, man, it's crazy. I uh, I kind of lumped into that situation because they were terrible the first year with Jeff Fisher. And Sean McVay, man, that guy's impressive. And he's like cool. Like that's the thing. You know what I like about Sean is that he's not like the typical mean jerk coach. Like I don't know Adam Gase at all. So I don't know other than what I read and what I see in videos and things like that. But he doesn't seem as friendly, as approachable as Sean is. Now, maybe that's because Sean is 31 or now going to be 32. And because Sean really made it a case to kind of befriend the guys on my show, me and the guys on my show. He'll be on my show Wednesday to talk about the combine. But, yeah, he's just really impressive, like just cool, easy to deal with. I could see why players would like him and relate to him. Ryan Clark, actually, my colleague at ESPN, played with him in Washington at the end. And he called him the Doogie Hauser of offense. But... Yeah, I mean, the Rams have some talent, right? Like, Aaron Donald is the best defensive player in the league, right? You can make the case, at least, that he is. You know, Gurley and, and Goff looks good. He looks completely different. Added Marcus Peters. Yeah, Marcus Peters. If they, you know, if they can get Sammy Watkins to pan out, then, yeah, I mean, I, I think they have higher upside than the Dolphins. Like, look, man, I feel like we're in the same Dolphins trap, right? Like, they're going to draft a damn guard, probably, in yeah. the first round. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, again. And, I, and I think they should, too, because they're so bad at that position. No, no. If Josh Rosen is there and they don't take him, I will absolutely renounce my fandom. I'd be fine if they took Mayfield, honestly, at, at 11. But uh, that's a conversation for another pod. All right, George, thank you for joining us. Um, where can people find you? Again, your Twitter uh, information and everything else that you do these days. And your podcast, too. I imagine your show has a podcast. It does have a podcast, ESPN LA Mornings with Keyshawn George and LZ. Uh, it's on the ESPN app. It's on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Sedano ESPN. Uh, other than the radio show, I host a weekly television show on ESPN2 uh, that airs every Thursday night, late at night, called Nacion ESPN. It is a uh, collaboration of all the Hispanic talent here at ESPN that airs weekly. And then, you know, during the week, I pop on everywhere. Sports Center, sometimes on these talk shows, Sports Nation or The Jump or whatever, uh, with Rachel and, and Marcellus and, and LZ and all those folks. So, yeah, I mean, I'm everywhere during the week on TV, but uh, not one not one home outside of the weekly Thursday night show. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking next week to another of our old friends. Mike Wallace is going to join us. Jason Jackson is going to join us. If you have suggestions on people we should rope into the podcast, be be sure to send those to us also on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.